0: This is the podcast of Principia Journal of Classical Education. I'm Brian Williams, General Editor of Principia and host of the Principia Podcast. We are recording today from the lovely studios of Classical Academic Press in Central Pennsylvania. Principia Podcast is the place where we dialogue with leading scholars connected to contemporary classical education and examine key moments, educators, texts, and issues in the long history of classical education. Today, uh. We have a guest with us. This is jo- Dr. Julia Hayduck, who's the Reverend Jacob Beverly Steitler Professor of Classics at the University at Baylor University, excuse me, and Associate Dean of the Honors College at Baylor. Dr. Hayduck did her BA in Classics at Princeton University and her MA and PhD in Classical Philology at Harvard University. So welcome, Dr. Hayduck, and thank you so much for being with us today. Dr. Hayduck has uh, an article coming out in Volume 1, Issue 1 of Principia, which will come out in February 2022. And her article is titled, The Liberal Arts and Virgil's Aeneid, What Can the Greatest Text Teach Us? Now, besides uh, having an article in the first issue of this first volume, as I mentioned, Dr. Hayduck uh, is in the Classics Department at Baylor, and Baylor has agreed to host uh, Principia Journal. So, Dr. Hayduck, I wonder if I can just start by asking you about Baylor's interest in hosting Principia. How did Baylor get to the point, or did the Baylor Classics Department get to the point where they think, yeah, we want to host an, an academic peer-reviewed journal in classical education?
1: Well, thank you for asking, and thank you for uh, having me on this podcast. Yeah, I'm I'm delighted to be able to talk a little bit about Baylor, um, a place that I love greatly. Uh, I've been here since 2003 uh, in the Classics Department, and um, I would say that our interest in hosting Principia has been sort of the part of a long process of organic growth. Um, that started with just a love of classics, a love of uh, the Latin and Greek
0: yeah.
1: original texts that are foundational for our civilization um, that is shared by everybody in my department. And um, when I first came to Baylor, though, I have to admit, I didn't really know that classical education per se was even a thing. I mean, it was, it was sort of growing awareness. Yeah. Um, there was a just a very sort of starter um, classical school um, was just kind of starting out which has now become you know uh, a major a major player in uh, education and um, so but over the years it increasingly became the case that some of our best students would come out of these classical schools um, and they came with just kind of a depth of understanding and, and a love, a kind of intuitive love of the subject. Um, and as well as many of them came already with a good deal of Latin and even Greek under their belts, which was sort of thrilling for us because we were used to having to kind of, you know, grow them from the ground up. So um, so yeah, we have more and more students like that and more of, of our students then would go to teach in classical schools. So we have this nice little feedback loop going. Right. But it's only really in recent years um, and really this past year that we've come to realize that you know, Baylor is actually called, I think, to take a much more of a leadership role in especially the, the sort of scholarly side of the classical education movement. Um, as you know, it's a movement that uh, has kind of be- began from the ground up and is, is really kind of maturing. Uh, one might say it's sort of in its adolescence now um, and in order to, um, to really grow to full adulthood, I think it needs to have that scholarly piece. And Baylor, as a uh, as really the true research university that is rooted in Baptist tradition but ecumenically Christian, and the only university that can really call itself that, and that happens to have one uh, uh, classics departments in the country, Uh, It just was clear that that we were the place, the place that should do this.
0: Well, I think that's absolutely right. And we think of it as a kind of major investment in classical education. And those of us connected to Principia are are really grateful to it because just as you said, uh, the hope with Principia Journal was to not only provide a platform for scholars to disseminate and publish their work, but also to drive more scholarship around classical education. And so we, we hope that's what happens. And I think Baylor's a great place for that. So are, are very grateful um, for Baylor's interest and willingness to host the journal.
1: Yeah, we're really excited about the journal. And there's a lot of other things that we're just on the cusp of doing that have to do with classical education as well. I mean, we are just putting in um, a proposal for a PhD program that will be both a true classics PhD but with a focus on classical education um, we're hoping this spring to host, God willing, and case <laughs> <that> don't rise, <laughs> to host a conference on um, uh, classics and classical education in the Black community that we're very excited about. Um, we are working with our colleagues in Great Texts and Philosophy and Baylor Center for School Leadership, really to try to develop, make Baylor kind of a center for classical education.
0: Well, you heard it here, folks. So keep your eyes on Baylor University. I mean, if you're involved in classical education at all, uh, do keep your eyes on developments at Baylor. And if you're in the area at all, yeah, stay tuned for some of these really exciting things that they're working on down there. Um, So, yeah, we be looking forward to to more things coming from uh, Baylor University. Hey, uh, Dr. Hedrick, I wonder if we can, we can turn to your article uh, and ask you a, a few questions about this article. As I mentioned, the article's coming out in Volume 1, Issue 1 of Principia uh, in early, early 2022. And the article is titled, The Liberal Arts and Virgil's Aeneid, What Can the Greatest Text Teach Us? Now, uh, what was your first experience of reading the Aeneid like? I mean, did you... You know, did you um, read it in the Latin originally? Did you read it in English? Did it capture your imagination right away? Or did you have to grow into the Aeneid? Or what, what, what was the experience like for you to start?
1: Yeah, well, um, I actually did not take Latin in high school. I did not have a classical education. I had a great education, but it wasn't it wasn't classically based. Right. Um, and it wasn't until my freshman year, uh, second semester of my freshman year of college, that I actually even encountered Virgil's Aeneid. Um, and it was in translation. It was in a course on Spencer and the epic romance, which began with um, Virgil's Aeneid and ended with Spencer's fairy queen. Wonderful course, but we read it in Dryden's translation, which um, about 1697, I think is the date for it, and it is all in iambic pentameter rhymed couplets, and it starts out, it's just sublime arms in the man I sing who forced by fate and haughty Juno's unrelenting hate expelled and exiled left the Trojan shore. I mean it's it's really stirring but by the time you get to about book two or three <laughs> you start to feel you know how many times have we seen fate great and state rhymed together <laughs> you know and and I just, I had this sort of double sense of this is an incredibly important, majestic, wonderful work, but it's got to be better in the original. <laughs> um, and so I decided to learn Latin. Um, actually, I learned Greek first and then I learned Latin. I was kind of a latecomer, so learned uh, Greek before my sophomore year and Latin before my junior year um, of college. And I don't know, I guess the rest is history. I never I never quite escaped from uh. From that, uh, just
0: the yeah. So, so tell us more about uh, uh, on the translation piece. It's a little bit like Dorothy Sayers' uh, translation of the comedy, uh, which is in English, and she tries to bring the Church of Rhyme scheme into English, and it has it has great notes, and I love the maps in her translation, but the the translation itself is is tough to engage because just think, oh, it doesn't mm-hmm. quite work like like this. So. Yeah. But so when you, when you started to discover it in Latin, what, what do you, what, what caused you to fall in love with it or what really captured your imagination, uh, about the Aeneid to begin with?
1: Well, there is, I mean, just in general, I think there is something about the intimate communion with the mind of an ancient, you know, a, a person who <laughs> lived in ancient times, an ancient person who you're reading the actual words that somebody wrote, you know, 2,000 or 500 or 2,700 years ago. I mean, and there there just is nothing quite like that in terms of just connecting you, this kind of deep connection um, with your past. Um, so there, you know, there's that aspect of it. But just the way, the things that Latin can do that English simply can't do, hmm. Latin, as an inflected language, um, where the meaning comes from the endings, you can put words in all kinds of crazy orders, Um, and it just, it it allows for um, a kind of development of the way um, the meaning of a line unfolds, the way a thought unfolds, that you simply can't do in, in English.
0: Okay, well, uh, say more about that. Why, why, why can't you do that in English? For people who, who maybe don't have Latin, like how, how does that work? What, what, is, what does Latin allow you to do that English doesn't?
1: So for instance, I mean, there's this is actually an example, a classic example from Virgil's um, Georgics, the, the work he wrote before the Aeneid. But there's this line where he's talking about um, what we would refer to as kind of the fall of man. You had a golden age and then all of a sudden... Um, Jupiter brought about the Iron Age, and the, the line is um, labor omnia wicket, um, which means work or labor conquered everything, right? So it seems like this is a just a, a beautiful sort of peon to human um, endurance, and but then the next word is improbus, which means wicked. So you go from seeing, okay, you start by thinking, okay, you know, work, labor conquered everything. Oh, that's great. And then, oh, wait, wicked. Oh, wait, this isn't actually labor like human labor. This is like toil. So like wicked toil took over everything. So you simultaneously have both the meaning that, you know, kind of work conquers all this kind of, you know, Protestant work ethic, (laughs) stirring idea. But you then also have the idea that that kind of Toil, like miserable, wicked toil, took over everything and wrecked our happiness. You can do that because of the way you can enjam the, at the adjective improbus. whereas in English you can't. You have to you have to put it before the noun, um, and there are just there are you know thousands of examples of things like that where, as the meaning of the line unfolds, you think it's going one way, but then another word suddenly will completely change. Uh, the meaning of the sentence.
0: That's fascinating. Maybe we can come back to uh, later in the podcast, asking you, if, you know, why you think students should take Latin, because uh, a lot of our classical schools do, uh, and I'd, I'd love to hear you, you reflect on that. But let me, can I go to the, the the title of your 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 article? The title of your article, "The Liberal Arts and Virgil's Aeneid." What can the greatest text teach us? And Calling it the greatest text is quite a claim when it comes after the Iliad, after the Odyssey, you know, before the comedy. So what gives the Aeneid the right to the title, the greatest text? Or what do you mean by the greatest text in your article?
1: Right. And as I clarify, I mean, obviously it's a polemical
0: <laughs> title.
1: <right? laughs> um, as I clarify the article, that doesn't mean it's the best text. But it does mean that I think more than any other text, it represents what we mean by the great text enterprise, the humanities great conversation. By this, I mean that it is unique in that it encompasses basically all of Greek and Latin literature up until it was written. I mean, Virgil was a polymath. read everything and took everything seriously. And um, so it sort of subsumes that, you know, the the Iliad, the Odyssey, Greek tragedy, um, Roman epic, as well as all kinds of non-literary intertexts, which is also fascinating about Roman religion and and other religious traditions, including, as I have recently come to realize, Judaism. Um, But it also is unique, utterly unique, in that, and this is something that we see in um, in Dante, uh, especially, actually, I, I have a another uh, little video coming out on um, Canto 22 of the Purgatorio for the Dante project, the 100 Days of Dante project, which I think you're involved with as
0: well. I am indeed.
1: Yes, uh, but that is um, where, where Statius, the poet Statius explains how Virgil was actually the one who, through whom Statius became a Christian, okay? So this pagan author, um, and this is primarily because of Virgil's fourth eclogue, the first work that we know that he wrote, um, which has been described as the messianic eclogue. It talks about the birth of a miraculous child. Um, It's full of imagery, basically from the Hebrew scriptures. um, And it is, uh, well, I argue, <laughs> to talk about my, my own research just a little bit, Yeah, yes, Virgil was reading the Bible and yes, he, he got it. And yes, this is really um, you know, a true prophecy of what a Christian would see as a prophecy of the birth of Christ, right? Now, back um, in 300 or 200 or 400 AD or whatever, it was not read as, you know, Virgil was reading the Bible and therefore was subsuming Christian prophecy. It was more that he... Um, was this pagan prophet of Christ who somehow, through God's divine providence, um, became a mouthpiece of um, messianic prophecy, of Jewish prophecy of Christ. And so therefore, Virgil became this kind of bridge figure between classical antiquity and um, the Christian heritage.
0: Yeah that, that that's great in my in my first couple podcasts I've done they've been on the kind of concept of tradition and how this tradition came together from the three great mediterranean cultures of the Greeks the Romans and the Christians and and how the early Christians certainly in north africa grappled with how to reconcile pagan texts and pagan authors with the new with the new religious uh, faith of, of of Christianity and Virgil it seems yeah for them was certainly a a bridge and a kind of divinely appointed bridge. So can I ask you to say more about Virgil's reading of Jewish scriptures? Did I hear you say that right? Do we, do we think Virgil was reading the Jewish scriptures possibly?
1: I think he actually was. And this this may take us a little far afield, um, but I have an article uh, published a few years ago called, um, Was Virgil Reading the Bible? Um, and it's a, a original sin and an astonishing acrostic in Virgil's, Orpheus and Eurydice so it's actually text uh, in the Georgics where it talks about um, what I see as sort of a, a reading of the fall that is there's a, a woman who is bitten by a poisonous snake and dies and then uh, that's Eurydice and then her her lover Orpheus goes down to the underworld to fetch her um, he of course fails because he looks back at the wrong moment but there's all kinds of sort of Christian right. um, of course, Christian Christianity was not uh, not around then, but uh, for later readers anyway, um, Orpheus was very much seen as a Christ figure. So anyway, in this um, episode, there is an an acrostic, which is to say, um, words or sentences that are spelled by reading the first letters of successive lines. But the acrostic is Isaiah says, right. Now,
0: wait, that's the acrostic, the acrostic, that's the acrostic exactly. is in this
1: Georgics passage, right? right?
0: Isaiah passage. says, right. Okay. Okay.
1: So the question is, I mean, I mean, it's <clears throat> deniable that that acrostic is there. The question is, of course, was it intentional, right? I mean, is this just a random sequence of letters did, or did Virgil mean it? Um, and I think he meant it. I think that he was deliberately alluding to um, to d- Jewish prophetic texts.
0: That's fascinating. Okay, I want to I go look that up. Uh, that, 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 that's amazing. Um, so <clears throat> let, me, let me ask another question uh, about this, this, this article, which is, which is beautifully written, by the way. Um, and about, about the Aeneid. You have a, a sentence where you say, the Aeneid was born in a decade of tumultuous transformation, an age poised precariously between the fresh memory of civil war and the hope for lasting peace. What gives the poem its universal pull is partly this precariousness. Um, You know, I mean, the the poem, ostensibly though, is also about this, you know, marauding warrior founding an empire. Um, I mean, you know, but what do you mean by the precariousness and where do you see the precariousness in the poem and and why why does that give the poem this kind of, yeah, this universal basic human appeal?
1: Yeah, well, that's actually several questions.
0: That is true. That is several that is true. That is true. Pick one, I suppose.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. I, I, will, I will first I guess begin by commenting when you when you say when the words marauding warrior.
0: <laughs> fine to take me to task on that. That's fine.
1: Are very loaded, right? Yes. Yeah, um, so, um, you know, is he a marauding warrior or is he a, a conquering hero who's the bearer of civilization? You know, how language is important, right? One indeed, of the reasons, right? It's, it's important to read things in the original because all translation is interpretation. Um, to, I mean, to answer a little bit about the precariousness though, I mean, it's easy for us in hindsight to look back and see the reign of the emperor Augustus, which, Basically, usually the the date that is associated with his consolidation of power is 31 BC, the date of the Battle of Actium, kind of mop up after that. Um, So, Virgil died in 19 BC with the Aeneid unfinished. So, he was writing the Aeneid basically in the decade after Actium. Right. Um, It could have gone otherwise, you know? Uh, What could
0: have the the Battle of Actium or the Aeneid? The Battle
1: of Actium, the war. you know, Augustus came at the end of about a century of civil war. Um, so, you know, there were lots of civil wars, lots of takeovers of power in, uh, in Roman history, uh, so much so that I think the Romans really came to see that just as kind of central to their identity. You think about the founding act of the Roman Empire, it's Romulus killing his brother Remus, right? right. So fratricide is something that is in the Roman's blood. So you have hundred years of civil war, then 10 years of kind of peace. And yet there were, you know, there were some perturbations in that as well. So I guess that's what I'm talking about when I say precariousness, okay. it's not like, okay, now we've got Augustus, now we've got the Pax Romana, which is gonna last for you know, 150 or 200 years or whatever. And so we're all good. Um, I think there was definitely the hope um, of lasting peace, but there was certainly not the certainty of it. And there also was, I mean, the the Romans had a very uh, dubious relationship with kingship. So they did not like the concept of king. They did not like the word king. Um, They did not, I mean, Augustus refused to call himself a king. He did not accept the title of the new Romulus precisely for that reason. Um, And Yet, in fact, he is, even though what he said he was doing was restoring the republic, it was pretty clear to everyone that this was the beginning of the empire. This was right. a new form of government that really does have uh, one leader um, and then is dynastic, right? So, so that's, a, that's a pretty darn big change. Right. Uh, nobody really knew it, in Virgil's day how it was going to turn out.
0: So do you see, did Virgil then, I mean, are you suggesting that Virgil kind of baked that precariousness into the Aeneid itself? I mean, is, is that precariousness of the, the, that moment in the Roman Empire, um, is that reflected in the poem?
1: So I think that the Aeneid is very much uh, characterized by the idea of sacrifice, um, which we think of that. Sort of at a metaphorical level, right? To to give up something of value for something of greater value, but they also were. This was a society that witnessed and experienced just countless animal sacrifices, and uh, some human sacrifices, including some. It is rumored by the Emperor Augustus himself when he was young, before he was emperor or princeps, as he called himself, right. So it's, it was in the nature of sacrifice for the Romans that it was unending. I mean, that you would sacrifice and then you would have to sacrifice again. And if you did anything wrong when you were sacrificing, you would incur a ritual fault that you would then have to, have to do another sacrifice in, in atonement and you could never quite get it right. So there's this sort of idea of of a cycle of sacrifice. And in particular, uh, in the Aeneid, you see many um, instances of the sacrificer, the sort of priest or sacrificer figure becoming the one who is himself sacrificed. Okay. So my, my take on the Aeneid is that that is very much kind of a subtext that's going throughout the poem That it is pointing toward the sacrificial death of Aeneas himself, which will happen outside of the poem. So insofar as Aeneas is an Augustus figure, um, while Virgil doesn't ever come out and say this, um, I think there is that, that sense of um, kind of lurking violence and sacrificial um, retribution, we could say. Um, so that, I mean, this is one of the things that makes the Edied such a, a complicated and fascinating poem is that it doesn't just have a clear um, okay, now good has triumphed over evil. Right,
0: right. Well, and, and even th- I mean, this is I n- noted this in your in your article itself. You know, Virgil's if, I mean, it's just the, can I say it like this? Virgil's relationship to a- to Aeneas is kind of complex too, because I mean, <laughs> you mean you write you claim in your article that Aeneas as a husband, a lover, a reader, and a man of piety is, in your language, a disaster. So right, which you know, raise the question for me: Why would Virgil write of his hero? Why would Virgil write that way of Aeneas? Why would he? Why would he depict Aeneas as a disaster in all these various areas? I mean, is is that, Vir, is that Virgil's attempt to <coughs> enable us uh, who are not uh, heroic Greeks or heroic uh, Romans to to relate to him? or why does Virgil do that, do you think?
1: Yeah, great question. I think what Virgil offers us more than really any other author that I could name is true moral complexity. Hmm. Um, That, I mean, and this is partly, this is the, the kind of the civil war mentality that you have two people who should be Kind of seeing things, seeing eye to eye, right? Who grew up in the same society and ha- are, are observing the same universe and live in the same moral universe, and yet they come to opposite conclusions about uh, about what is right. I mean, that's that's kind of what civil war is all about. And I think as as Americans, we are we are living this. I mean, which is one of the reasons why these civil war authors um, like. Virgil and Horace, I think, are, are so important, um, speaking to our time. But when you have this kind of moral complexity, it means that a hero is, just by definition, going to be unheroic in, in certain respects. And I think that what is heroic about Aeneas is that he doesn't get to do what he wants to do. That he is characterized by by pietas, um, and what what that means, and it's again, it's an, a word that's kind of untranslatable. Mm-hmm. Basically, designates the whole kind of dense web of human relationships and responsibilities um, that we, as you know, as, as mature uh, human beings, are are enmeshed in. I mean, to become an adult is is to Uh, yeah, to kind of develop your, your pietas, your responsibility to others, your sense that you're not just this autonomous free agent who gets to do whatever, um, but that you have all these duties and that they conflict with one another, right? That you, that you, the person that you love, you can't just enjoy being with that person because that conflicts with some other duty and
0: you're, you're constantly trying to work and getting a job, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so so is is it, what, what, what we see in Aeneas, is it the pursuit of one responsibility at the cost of another? Is, is, that the, is that some of the conflict? I mean, is that why he fails in different respects? Because he's he has to pursue one, one good, one calling, one mission, and that means he can't pursue others in the same way or to the same degree or something like that?
1: I think that's certainly true, and especially whenever he actually wants to do something, right? I mean, <laughs> what he wanted was to be with Dido. <laughs> he was in love with. Right. And... And he couldn't. I mean, we talk about you know, oh, follow your dreams. <laughs> what Aeneas's dreams tell him is, all right, get up, leave this place where you're happy, go into the unknown and dangerous because all of these people and the fate of the world are depending on you, <laughs>
0: right?
1: <Is that laughs> what we mean. <laughs> um, and I think that this is why. I mean, when I was younger, I just I didn't quite get it, right. I didn't, I, didn't um, I couldn't quite relate to that kind of dilemma and the older I get, the more I come to, to just read the Aeneid and read Aeneid and see oh wow. That's-
0: yeah well you call it you call it a poem of adulthood and I yeah. wanted to ask about that as well but I think that's what you're getting at right here. it sounds like mm-hmm. this is a poem of adulthood and I, I don't know about you've I've taught texts over the years. Both the high school students and college students, and at the end, thought, "Oh, you weren't ready for that text, and I wasn't ready for that text yet either when I was 16 or 18, probably." Right. Are Are high school and college students ready for the for the Aeneid?
1: The thing is, though, it's also just a great story. You
0: know? <laughs> yeah, that's <A> story true. Story
1: <laughs> of love and war and passion and monsters and you know just beautiful. I mean, it's in a way I would say it's less it's certainly less immediately accessible than say the Odyssey, which is just as uh, Robert fail described it what's well, just a ripping good yarn, right <laughs> yeah. it, it's it's not I mean it's it's weirder and more complicated, but it also has those elements. So I mean I think it's um you know, it's not like we're trying to get them to read Kant or something and relate right. to but you know it's it's a great story um, but also, I guess i believe in people will rise to what you ask of them (laughs) and they they're certainly not going to rise to um understanding or relating to the aeneid if they don't read it
0: yeah if, if they've never read it yeah and i mean what i what i thought about in some of those some of those texts i've read or some of those texts i've taught i remember reading vipers tangle by uh francois Mauriac, the french writer with 18 year olds and i got to the end of it and i thought Oh, my students haven't suffered and failed enough to really relate to this. But then I, but then I thought, well, but when they do suffer, when they do fail, they will have this book in mind, perhaps. you know And the, the central figure, the patriarch or figure Louis, and his own failures, and maybe maybe that will help them frame their own experience, as well as just being great literature, I think. So, so so maybe the Aeneid, I mean, that's what great texts are, right? Every time we read them, every time I come back to the comedy, for example, I'm a different person. And I see something exactly. different, and I have different questions. And I, I think the Aeneid uh, is probably similar to that.
1: And I think it is, I mean, as you were saying, it's it's suffering, right? That, right. that allows us to enter really deeply into these great texts. Um, and the more you live, the more of that you're going to have.
0: <laughs> and the more you need these great texts, I think, and the exactly. more you need these great stories. I mean, you know, with the Odyssey, you know, when the first time I read it, I did not relate to Penelope and Odysseus, the same way I do now 27 years on into marriage, right? And I see that relationship differently than I did the first time I read it. Uh, though the first time I read it, this was a rollicking good yarn, and I, and I had a great time with it. So I, I think, uh, you know, all these texts are like that. Um, let me let me ask one other question about your, your article. It's the very first time that I've seen um, Aeneas compared to Mother Teresa, so that caught me out. I had to I had to read that a couple different times, and and you know say what? So um, do you want to elaborate on your comparison between Mother Teresa and Aeneas? I mean, of course you can say no, and we can just send people to the article and let them read it for themselves. Um,
1: of course, I want them to read the article for themselves. But I'll give a little teaser here. Please. One thing about Mother Teresa that is was shocking uh, to most people after her diary was published um, was that she lived for decades in intense suffering, pain and darkness. And this is the woman who um, to most people would have said, she just was kind of the, the paragon, the icon of joy right? um, and love. And yet she she suppressed all that. Um, she, she kept it down and always smiled at everyone um, and Aeneas, especially um, that, that wonderful line in book one, spem vultu simulat premit altum corde dolorem, he simulates hope on his face, presses the pain deep within his heart. Um, oh, that's just
0: beautiful.
1: Uh, that connection, I think, of, of being, being a leader, right? Being responsible and having to suppress and hide your own pain. Um, is, is, a, is a deep connection. The difference, however, I mean, obviously many differences, but I mean, Mother Teresa's pain um, was basically the pain of Jesus. It was the pain of seeing people refuse to accept God's love and God's forgiveness. For Aeneas, gods don't have any forgiveness mm. and they don't have any love. Mm. Um, there is no forgiveness. And so his pain ultimately uh, just erupts and overwhelms him. Um, so for more than that, you'll have to read the article on books.
0: Okay, that's beautiful. Thank you. Hey, uh, just, just in closing, let me come back to that question about students taking Latin. So you're a classics professor at Baylor University. Uh, you know, a lot of students in classical schools have to take Latin, and a lot of students in classical schools um, wonder why and, and balk at it. Uh, how would you answer that question to the you know either the parent of a student or a 16 17 year old asking the question why should I take Latin
1: well I'd have them watch this podcast of course
0: <laughs> of course
1: <laughs> I mean I think I've you know I, I have said some of the many of the things that I've said already I mean that there there simply is nothing like reading something that's 2,000 years old in the original language um, I think that you need to sort of give them some, let's say, sort of intermediate rewards. I mean, reading these stories in English and saying, wouldn't this this be great in Latin? Or reading little bits of of actual real Latin and isn't this cool? Um, I think also that Latin is, it truly is foundational to the whole educational project in a way that very few subjects really are. I mean, obviously, it's the foundation of, of all the romance languages. Um, more than half of our vocabulary comes from Latin. I mean, I hate to make this sort of utilitarian argument, well, oh, it'll help you with your SATs and that sort of thing. But, you know, it, it just in terms of understanding of language, the way language works in general, um, as a mental discipline, also as a just a kind of a, a discipline in, in learning virtue. <laughs> that it, it isn't always easy at first. Um, you know, the, the the beginning parts are kind of are kind of tough. Um, but as you progress, it it becomes more exciting, more enjoyable. Um, it forms these habits, I think, intellectual habits of precision and of, well, I can't just kind of, you know, get the gist of it, no, you actually have to know really what this word is <laughs> in order to understand the sentence at all. Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, so I think that for that reason,
0: it yeah.
1: it cultivates a kind of intellectual virtue um, that is it's hard to come by other ways. I mean, I think math, to some extent, it, yeah. it is math in that it is all cumulative and, and so on, um, but it also, it just opens up kind of a whole world of of literature and of human experience um, that you can now encounter directly that you don't wanna have to rely on translations. And this, as I say, this is a professional translator who spent countless hours trying to get it right. Translation is always interpretation, right? And then there there actually are, believe it or not, a lot of texts that have not been translated.
0: Yeah, I'm always amazed. I, I work on texts from the medieval period and, and and late medieval period and early Renaissance period, and I'm always amazed authors we've known about and significant authors for hundreds of years, and so much of their work is still untranslated. And I, you know, and I'm always just made. And I always, you know, which is fine. I can do some of the translation, but I'd be a lot you know easier if somebody else did it for me. But there's nothing like reading them in the original language, like you said, and like you said, I think for me, and like most lots of people. I didn't understand English until I learned Latin. And uh, I, it certainly helped me slow down as a student and become a much better student. And I think a much more careful um, scholar and thinker through learning the language. Yeah.
1: And I mean, like I have a, you know, a former student who's a very successful lawyer now and says that, you know, he, he really learned to read texts well in my Latin class. Yeah. Um, like you say, it, it, it forces you to slow down um, and, and really to look at the whole world. You can't just, you can't just uh, fake it in Latin. Um, but the thing is that, I mean, yes, most people that learn Latin in a classical school are not going to go on to translate, you know, untranslated medieval texts. But nevertheless, it's, it's formative to your, just to your brain in, in a very formative time of your life. I mean, people, people say, oh yeah, I did Latin and it didn't do anything for me. It's kind of like people saying, well, yeah, you know, I had milk every day for breakfast and it didn't do anything for me. Well, do
0: you know? I mean, yeah.
1: it was a, it was a formative part of, of teaching you how, how to think and how to interact with the world in ways that you could not possibly understand that no one could possibly understand.
0: God, that's great. All right. Well, uh, folks, go go read Virgil's Aeneid, then go learn Latin and read it in the Latin. Uh, and before all that, perhaps read Dr. Julia Hayduck's article in Principia, Volume 1, Edition 1, called The Liberal Arts and Virgil's Aeneid, What Can the Greatest Text Teach Us? There's a whole lot more in there that we've been able to unpack right now. Uh, but Dr. Hayduck, just want to say thank you. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for your article talking with us today and for really leading and helping lead Baylor's movement in and and leadership in uh, classical education today. We're all very grateful and looking forward to uh, what's to come. So uh, for everyone, let me say, um, uh, Dr. Haydock and I mentioned uh, the Dante project. If you're interested in following up on that, it's called 100 Days of Dante. You can find uh, it on the website and there's uh, a uh, a series of 100 lectures coming out soon to celebrate the 100th anniversary of, of Dante's um, death. So, uh, Dr. Hayduck, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, looking forward to getting this, this article out. So there, we'll we'll wrap it up. I'm Brian Williams, general editor of Principia Journal, and this has been the Principia Podcast.